We uh, are excited, honestly, about our theme, right? We, we have a theme for the year, and it's what? Disciple shift. Good. Some of you started reading the mission statement. We also have a new mission statement. What is that? We exist to, to be, be disciples, disciples who make disciples who live and love, love like, like Jesus. Jesus. Good. We might need to practice that again. Absolutely. I think so. All right. If you have learned the mission statement from memory... Again, we're going to ask you to just close your eyes and see if you can say it from memory. And uh, if you're new here and you're just checking this out and you're like, I don't, I don't understand what this is, then you can go ahead and read it again. But let's try this together one more time. We exist to be disciples who make disciples who live and love like Jesus. Now, Scott, some yeah. people are like, I don't, that's nice and all, but what does that what mean? What does that mean? Sure. Well, we realized about a year ago that we felt like we were on a bus and we had no idea where we were headed. So as leaders, we started praying and seeking the Lord and asked for some direction. And as we hopped into his word in the coolest way, the Holy Spirit kept reinforcing to multiple people this direction that comes from Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. When Jesus turned to his disciples, his parting words is as if, as if like the last things that he was going to say to his disciples, and he says, I want you to, he says, all authority is given to me. So on the authority of Jesus Christ, he says, I want you to go and I want you to make disciples of other people, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Then he gave a promise too, teaching them to obey everything you've commanded. And he gave a promise that I will be with you to the very ends of the age. We want Jesus to be right here with us, that's for sure. And, uh, and so we want to be about his mission. But it also means not only his mission, but his methods. So examining the Gospels and asking the question, how did Jesus make disciples. Did Jesus make disciples only on Sunday mornings, Eric? <laughs> I think so. No, the answer no, is no. No, he did not. Okay. The answer is no. He spent life with these people around him, these men and women around him, and he looked at how they lived and said, hey, see how like, you care about who's the greatest? I'm telling you the least shall be the greatest, and the greatest shall be the least. And so he found ways to interact with their life, not just in a classroom or in a sanctuary, a worship center, but coming in next to them in their life and, and pointing them to Scripture, pointing them to the truth of who he was, and then he released them out into ministry. It wasn't just about filling their head with knowledge. Knowledge is great, but we're challenging the core assumption that enough information plus enough inspiration will automatically equal transformation. It takes something even more, and that's coming alongside the life of another individual to share life with them, share Jesus with them, share God's word, and then encourage them to be a, a disciple maker themselves. Okay. Now, you saw this take place in a very cool way. Uh, I don't know if anyone remembers Jason Brown. He was my youth pastor as well in, um, in yeah, Indiana. So yeah. Eric and I actually are both from Indiana. We were in the same youth group, and Jason Brown was our youth pastor. Tell us about how that Jason Brown being your youth pastor, and then you ended up here. Tell us about that story. Yeah. So when I was in high school, Jason Brown, who uh, was the youth pastor here for a while, right before uh, I graduated from high school, Jason had left Winona Lake, Indiana, to move to Frederick, Maryland, to be the youth pastor here at this church. And uh, we were all devastated because we loved Jason so dearly. We thought, we, you know, we're losing a great youth pastor. And uh, actually, I think for a few years, I, I harbored a grudge against Frederick Maryland for stealing our youth pastor. Uh, that's not the case. But uh, he came here. And so right before I graduated college, Jason was still the youth pastor here. He was here for about five years. And uh, before I finished college in my youth ministry majors, uh, in my classes, I had to do an internship. 
And so Jason was actually, I'd stayed in close contact with him, and he said, hey, why don't you come to Frederick for the summer and do an internship with me and uh, see what being a, a youth pastor is about. And so Jason had discipled me in high school, and he had discipled me then in college. And so because we had been meeting, we had been studying God's word, he held me accountable to the things that I was wrestling with. He was praying for me. I knew that he would always you know, do whatever I needed at the drop of a hat. He would bend over backwards to help me. And so here he invites me to come and do this internship and to continue discipling me as I'm studying to be a youth pastor. And as I went back to Grace College uh, in Indiana for my senior year then of college, Jason began to see that God was leading him uh, to move back to Florida to be closer to his family. And so he had called me up and uh, Pastor R had called me and said, hey, why don't you come take Jason's place as the youth pastor here? And uh, so that's actually how I got started here. And it was so cool to see God's plan in that. And uh, I remember it was funny, the same thing happened with a lot of the students here in this ministry. They love Jason, same as in Indiana. They were really angry that he was leaving. And they're like, we don't like this new guy who's coming in. He's, he's a Cubs fan. What does he know? He's a goober. Yeah, exactly. They probably said that. Yeah. So they, they, they were sad that Jason was leaving, but it was so cool because God had this plan. And you see, our church was starting to grow, and there were all these students in our youth ministry who were really hungry, and Jason had the insight to see that, you know, God's doing some really cool things. And he said, Eric, you're really about discipleship and leading our students, and I think that's what they need right now because they're hungry and they want to grow spiritually, and you're going to be able to give them that better than I am. And it was just this cool picture. So Jason was discipling you. He brought you in in a life-on-life situation then released you into ministry where you can multiply disciples. And that's really what we feel like God's calling us to, not just to give information or have a class, but say, how can we be in a relational environment with one another intentionally, not just like accidentally, but intentionally investing in one another to release each other into ministry. And yeah. that's, what our, that's what our heart is. And yeah. that's what the, actually what the youth group does so very well uh, and why it's been really cool to see how God's really brought what he's been doing in the youth and kind of bringing the church into alignment with that. It's been really neat. Yeah. Yeah, it's been fun because I kind of see this now as my role as a youth pastor is to make disciples and, in a sense, work myself out of a job where any one of our students could go into full-time ministry uh, or take over for me at any point. So uh, to th- see that and then really uh, see our students go off to college and go into all these different places. And it's been awesome to see them taking ownership of their faith and being disciples and making disciples, pointing people to Jesus. It's been incredible. Um, so we have, uh, we want to illustrate this for us this morning, okay? So our, our youth drama team, they're going to go ahead and come on up here and get ready. And uh, our youth drama team, they're going to do this skit this morning that kind of shows us some of the awkward tensions, some of the maybe excuses that we make when we think about discipleship. And uh, I actually had this week a few people ask me, Eric, the church keeps talking about discipleship. What does that really mean? Well, pay attention this morning because we're going to get into that a little bit further. Uh, So give your attention to the drama team. Hey, look, it's a newbie. Don't be so mean. It's Jesus. He's the total package. Some people say that he's the son of God. I think I'm going to invite him to my party next weekend. Him? You're serious. Well, I guess he has a little potential. Hey, guys. Uh, you know... You've heard I was tutoring. Math is on Mondays. Science is Tuesdays. History is Wednesdays. Spanish is Thursdays. I didn't know. Thank you for your concern, though. 
So glad this guy's nice. Finally, someone who cares about something other than himself. Don't worry, I'm human. I was wondering, would you like to follow me? Wow, I just realized. You're Jesus. It's nice to meet you. So that means you're the son of God, right? Cool. How is it like to be, you know? It's wonderful, but you didn't really answer my question. I'll answer it for you. I don't really need you right now. I'm doing so well on my own. I get straight A's in school. I'll call you if I need you, but I don't right now. Besides, following you seems kind of hard. I read my Bible every day and say grace before I eat. I even go to church every Sunday. Thanks, but no thanks. Maybe in a couple of years, if I'm in the right situation. Come on, Jenna. Hi. What do you want? Come, follow me. You realize that you're Jesus, right? You're so perfect and holy and all that jazz. I'm just some loser who's done stuff she shouldn't have done. I'm a Christian and stuff, but I'm the only person who knows that. And even then, I'm not sure it's true. I'm not cut out for this job. I wouldn't be much help to you. I've done way too many bad things to be a heavy-duty disciple of you. I know my place. It's time you knew yours. Wow. I just talk back to Jesus. I'm such a sinner. Hey, wait up. That Jesus guy is way too nice. Quinn isn't even in his league, not even in his solar system. <laughs> See, I told you so. Guys, come follow me. Um, excuse me, I don't follow. I am followed. If you don't know, I got it made. Look at me. I got it all. Beauty, talent, and a sweet and spicy attitude. You know, I said the special sinner's prayer and everything, so I'm guaranteed to heaven and everything, right? So I think I'll stick to being popular instead of turning to some church geek like Laura <laughs> later. Katrina, come follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. Fisher of what? No offense, but that sounds kind of weird. I don't need fishing techniques or whatever. I have a full-ride cheerleading scholarship to Maryland. Cheering is my life. I mean... God is cool and everything, and I would do it, but I need to practice, practice, practice. You know, this might slow me down and make me lose my scholarship. I don't need any distractions right now, so thanks, but no thanks. Please, God, let there be one person. Jenna, I know your friend Laura said no, but... Are you kidding me? I can't believe they acted that way. You are Jesus, the son of the one true God. You could have just destroyed us with the snap of your fingers, but you didn't because you love us that much. And to die for me, that's just unbelievable after all the pain we caused you. Lord, please give me the honor of letting me serve and follow you. Please disciple me. How could I say no? Come, we have work to do. Hi, my name is R. Dallas Green, and I said last week that Christianity had a powerful if, uh, impact upon our nation and the world. Christianity won the West, and it toppled the Roman Empire. But unlike Islam, Christianity spread without the raising of the sword. So what was the secret of the early church and the movement that God began? Well, we, we know that to be a Christian, to be part of Christianity, a person needs to identify themselves as a Christian. But nobody quite knows in this country, how to define Christian. If I went around the room today and I asked, you know, what is a Christian? I'd probably get hundreds of different kinds 
of answers. You know, there's Christians on both sides of every issue, immigration, tax reform, every political argument, every legal argument. There are pro-life Christians. There are pro-choice Christians. There are Democrats and Republicans. There's Christians who believe that government obligations provide health care to all Americans. There's Christians who believe we can't afford it. To review back to our first week, I said Christian was a term manufactured back in the first century to describe the followers of Jesus living in Antioch. But believers used another term, a more terrifying term, a term disciple. Hence, we have a new vision statement about being disciples, who are making disciples, who are living and loving like Jesus. In America, you can be a Christian and pretty much believe anything you want to believe and adopt any lifestyle that you want. So to many, Christianity has become a religion. Being a Christian is about what a person believes or how they behave. But being a disciple is about a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's possible that you grew up in a Christian family. Your mom, your dad, your mom and dad were both Christians. You often went to church. I know somebody who went to a a church all of her life, raised in a godly home, and she believed that she did A, namely kept the rules, and if she did B, she kind of fought for her marriage and her career, then she'd get C, a good life. She didn't realize that her marriage would disintegrate, that divorce would be a chapter of her life, that she'd deal with being a single parent and the hardships therein, and wrestle in her faith with clinical depression. She woke up one morning when she was 35 with two small children, and she said, I was in a dark fog as to who I was as a woman or what it means to be a Christian. For 10 years, she struggled with the circumstances of her life and feeling, frankly, some anger toward God. She never imagined that she'd be on her face, flat on her face so many times, dealing with her loneliness, dealing with her singleness, and just not understanding um, at all. And when she prayed, she said, this was her prayer. She said, I am broken and I am alone. But I believe, God, you can take me into a stronger place where I can experience intimacy with you, where I can come understand that Jesus is my bridegroom and that Abba is my father. This woman would have said, if you'd asked her, that she is a Christian that she married a Christian man. They had a Christian wedding. They had a Christian marriage. They were raising a Christian family. They hung around with Christians. They went to Christian Bible studies. But it was in her brokenness that she understood what it meant to be a disciple. Stephen Jobs, in his book, if you've read it, he said, the juice of Christianity goes out, and he never claimed to be a Christian, but he said the juice of Christianity goes out when it's merely based on faith. Rather, it's about living like Jesus lived and seeing as Jesus saw. Now, I want you to hang on to that because that's part of our vision statement, living like Jesus lived 
and seeing people as Jesus saw them. So many people in our culture want to identify themselves with Christianity. So what do they do? They put an ichthus, a fish, on their car. They wear a cross around their neck. They put a cross on their shoulder. They carry a big, fat Bible. (laughs) And um, they really want to be identified as a Christian. If you ask them, are you a Christian? They'd say, yes. But how did Jesus identify his followers? He said, by this, all men will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. The radical love that you show to one another of how you live out your faith. So, I've come to ask you a question. Are you merely a Christian or are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? And if you are, would you be willing to sign on to say that I am a disciple? My sole purpose is to move you from saying merely I am a Christian to I am a disciple. Am I a disciple of Jesus Christ? Will I follow him wherever he leads me? Will I do what he asked me to do? Am I loving the person of Jesus Christ? Am I loving the people that Jesus Christ loves? Am I in an abiding relationship with the person of Jesus Christ? Is my life being changed by him? And am I on a mission with Christ to see his kingdom expand? Last week, we saw that Jesus gave an invitation to some fishermen in Matthew chapter 4. The fishermen's names were Peter and Andrew and James and John. You see, they were beside the Sea of Galilee. There were great crowds pressing in, and Jesus was teaching the Word of God. And then Jesus said, come, follow me. Now, the very same invitation he gave to them, he gives to me, he gives to you, to come and follow him. Now, you don't have to have it all figured out because I don't have it all figured out. And they didn't have it all figured out. And you don't have to have all your questions answered because they had lots of questions and I still have lots of questions. And we're designing something here called Starting Point, a safe place for you to ask your questions about the faith. You can begin to lean into the direction of Jesus without yet believing everything. You can begin reading your New Testament without understanding everything. But what is Jesus saying about, come, follow me? He's saying, draw near to me. Be my friend. Follow me. Get close to me. Take a few notes and begin to experience, encounter my love. Following Jesus, then, is a commitment I make that I make with my mind, my head. I allow Jesus to be the head of my life, and I follow him with a decision made of my head. Just like if somebody says, follow me, and you have to follow their taillights everywhere, you're following that person. Today in the Super Bowl, Peyton Manning will call plays, asking his offense to follow him. On running plays, a guard will pull out and a running back will follow. On passing plays, a receiver will run a route. As a team, they get to follow the 
game plan. I tell you that following Jesus is not always easy. It is hard. Sometimes what he says to do doesn't make sense to us. So Jesus got into Peter's boat, you remember from last week. And he said to Peter something that Peter didn't quite understand. He said, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Now, he just finished his sermon, so he could have said anything to Peter. He could have said, Peter, did you like my sermon? But instead, he turned from reaching the crowd now to making a disciple. And that's what we're talking about now is moving from reaching people to making disciples. He said, Peter, I want to borrow your boat. I want to inconvenience you. He asked Peter to do something he had done a thousand times. Peter was a professional fisherman. He and his brother Andrew were in the fishing business. So he had a number of problems with what Jesus would ask him to do. The first is he said he had just finished fishing all night, working hard all night, and he hadn't caught anything. His second problem was he was being asked by a carpenter to go fishing. And he didn't believe that Jesus knew anything about fishing. Now, I'm sure that Peter said, and maybe you said this too, he doesn't know anything about what he's talking about. Because every fisherman knows that 100% of the fish are in 10% of the water. And when the sun comes up, the fish go to the deep part of the lake. But when the sun goes down, the fish come into shore. And Peter had been trying to catch fish all night long and hadn't caught anything. And now he's really feeling like going home and taking a break. And Jesus is saying, let's go fishing again. It's kind of like this, that one of your kids wants to make brownies. And says, let's make brownies. And you said, he just washed up all the dishes, right? Or let's go off-roading, right? And you say, I just washed the truck. Well, the issue for Peter is pretty huge. He's, he believes that he is an expert on fishing in the Sea of Galilee. I know how to fish. I know when to fish. I've been fishing a thousand times. But Jesus was saying, I know you've done this a thousand times, but this time I want you to do it different. Peter is battling with something deep inside of him. He's battling with his pride. Can I receive instruction? Can I receive correction with humility? What's at stake? Can I trust and obey the person of Jesus Christ? Now, the longer I live, therein lies the key question to your life and to mine. Can I trust the person of Jesus? Can I obey what he is telling me to do? We're so used to saying, I can do it by myself, living independent. We're so used to saying, nobody tells me what to do being self-sufficient. You see, when Jesus asked him to follow, there was some pushback, some resistance. But what happened when Peter finally obeyed? I call this the because you said so principle. You see, Peter said, Master, we've worked hard all night, but because you say so, I will do what you say. You see, Peter stepped into obedience. Peter said, I respect you just enough to listen to what you say and to follow you. 
It's not necessarily what I want to do. It's not necessarily I think I'm going to catch fish. It's not necessarily the crowd's going to like agree with me. But Jesus, I will follow you. I will follow you because you said so. When I go into the grocery store and it's a long line, I'll smile at the cashier because you said so. And when we sit in the restaurant and the waitress comes up, I'll ask her how I can pray for her because you said so. And when I feel offended, I'll choose to forgive because you said so. And when I don't feel like it, and I feel like I shouldn't, I'll love because you said so. And I'll live my life with integrity, letting my yes be yes and my no be no because you said so. You see, it's the because you said so principle that Peter obeys. And when he does, he casts his net. And there's so many fish that come into the net, it begins to break. And he calls his partners to help, and the boat begins to sink. And now he sees that when he obeys Jesus, there is an abundance. Peter was living his life in scarcity. But when he obeyed Jesus, he stepped into abundance. You say, Pastor R., why have we gone down to Haiti to help 35 farmers who have absolutely nothing? How come we've gone down there to love them and disciple them and show them how to farm? Because he said so. There is no other reason why we've done this other than Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations and baptizing them. Seven were baptized last time we were there. And now we hear there's four to 700 pounds of coffee coming out of that region because farmers are learning how to farm their coffee and they're going to bring it to America and we're going to drink some of that coffee. <laughs> why did we do it? Why did we do it? Because he said so. You see, our lives are a reflection of what he's told us to do. But then it, not, it came not about fishing anymore. Because Peter, Peter said, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. You see, Peter realized he was in the presence of God. And he realized his own sin. And he was very afraid. And Jesus said, don't be afraid, Peter. From now on, you're going to be uh, catching men. And Peter left everything. He left his boats and his fish. He left his nets. He left his fishing partners. He left everything to follow Jesus. He found the greatest treasure of all, and he sold it all out to follow after Jesus. This morning's text is found in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9. And we have to do this morning with a man whose name was Matthew. Now, I happen to have a son-in-law by the name of Matthew, and the team going to Haiti this year, the two leaders are Matthew and Matthew, and there's plenty of Matthews in this room, so for all you Matthews, this is just for you. It reads in chapter 9, verse 9, Jesus went on from there. And you have to ask yourself in the Scripture, when something says, therefore, what's it there for? Or if it says there, where is there? Where is Jesus now? in this story. Well, he's in the town of Capernaum. And Capernaum was on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. 
There were 30 cities around the Sea of Galilee, and Capernaum was the largest city. And Jesus' court had sort of camped out in Capernaum. If you turn back in your Bible to Matthew chapter 8 and verse 5, it says, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, there was a centurion who was there. And the centurion was a leader of a hundred men, the backbone of the Roman army. And he had a man in his house, a servant, who was paralyzed with terrible suffering. He invited Jesus to come. And Jesus says, I will go and I will heal him. Notice the willingness of Jesus to enter our pain and our suffering. And then the centurion kind of changed his mind there in Capernaum. He said, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come into my house, for I'm a man under authority. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and this one, come, and he comes. This one, you know, go get my lunch, and he gets my lunch. This one, go build a road, and he builds a road. So he understood authority. He said, just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus said, you know, you may go. Your servant has been healed. That happened in the city of Capernaum. Jesus was in the city of Capernaum, and a centurion's servant was healed. Then we read on in chapter 9 about Jesus coming out of a boat and crossed over and came to his hometown. What was his hometown? Well, he was living now in the town of Capernaum. And what happened in that town of Capernaum? There were some men, men of faith, and they had a friend who was paralyzed. And so they put their friend on a stretcher, and the four men carried him to the house where Jesus was. Jesus was teaching, and there was absolutely no room in the house. So they went around the side of the house, up the stairs, to the roof, and they began digging through the roof, and dust was falling on their heads, and they lowered down the stretcher, into the presence of Jesus. And Jesus said, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees took issue with this because they believed he was blaspheming. And Jesus says, why have evil thoughts entered your heart? Don't you know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins? But that you may know he has authority, I say to you, take up your mat and walk. And a paralyzed man walked out of that house. And that happened in Capernaum. A centurion's servant was healed. This man was healed. And they left that place. They left there. And he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, let me ask you a question. It's a rather obvious question since we're in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. Who is the author of this gospel? The answer is Matthew, right. So not a real hard question that we're reading Matthew, and this is Matthew. Who's this story about? Matthew, right. So, okay, stay with me now. We're, we're in the book of Matthew. This is a story about Matthew. So you think Matthew would know this story very, very well. This is sort of autobiographical now, okay? Matthew's telling his own story in the book of Matthew. Notice what it says, he saw a man whose name was Matthew. When Mark tells the same story, he said, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. When Luke tells the same story, he said, he saw a tax collector 
sitting at a tax collector's booth. But when Matthew tells his own story, he said he saw a man named Matthew. What did Jesus see? He saw a man. He saw a man made in the image of God. He saw the Imago Dei. He saw somebody who is worthy of love. Whether a person is black or white, they are made in the Imago Dei. Whether a person is straight or gay, they are made in the Imago Dei. Whether they are rich or poor, they're made in the Imago Dei. What did Jesus see when he saw a person like Mary Magdalene? Did he see a prostitute or did he see a woman? What did Jesus see when he saw the woman at the well? Did he see a broken woman with an empty jar who had lived an immoral life? Or did he see a woman who needed to be loved? What did Jesus see when he saw Zacchaeus? Did he see a blind, broken man? Or did he see a man made in the image of God? You see, to see like Jesus sees requires us to have the eyes of Jesus. And what Jesus saw was he saw a man, and a man whose name was Levi. Now, I'm not talking about Levi's like the blue jeans Levi's. He saw a man whose name was Levi from the tribe of the Levites. He was born into a Jewish family. He was well-educated. He was steeped in religion. So what did Jesus see? He saw a man, a man made in the image of God, somebody with incredible worth and value. But what did the disciples see? Now this plot kind of thickens. What they saw was a tax collector. The tax collectors were the worst of the worst. They were the scum of the earth. Think about somebody that you disdain, like a 22-year-old selling drugs to middle school kids behind the convenience store. Think about a 42-year-old inducing a young woman into prostitution and trafficking her. The tax collectors were worse. You say, Pastor, how did a person get to be a tax collector? Well, Rome auctioned off the right to collect taxes. Wealthy people would, would bid on the right to collect taxes. It's sort of like the shark tank. You know the shark tank, the show, the shark tank? where people sort of bid on various businesses to try to get the contract? Well, it's possible that Matthew was under a chief tax collector. But there's no question that Matthew was a wealthy man. There's no question that he had a lucrative career. That Matthew made his money by taxing people. He could charge them whatever he wished and then take the rest for himself. Tax collectors were hated. Tax collectors were considered traitors. Tax collectors were considered scum. Now, Jesus could have said many things to Matthew. I'm sure the disciples would have said many things to Matthew. He could have said something like, I bet your mother is really proud of you. But what did Jesus say to the tax collector. 
he said, follow me. You may have the most lucrative career in this room. You may have more money than anybody else here. But there's a call upon Jesus to follow him. I'm not sure I'm 100% right on this one. I have a very vivid imagination. But I can imagine when Jesus said to the tax collector, follow me, there was almost like an audible or inaudible groan. He didn't say to the tax collector, follow me. I don't even like tax collectors. I would never hang out with tax collectors. Tax collectors are the enemy. They've sold out to Rome. But here's Matthew. Day after day, collecting taxes, going to his tax collector's booth, nickeling, diming people, making himself rich, having a very lucrative job. He could afford the best house in the city. He could afford the best food to eat. He could afford to travel if he wanted to. But Jesus knew something about Matthew, the tax collector, that he longed to be accepted. I want to tell you that you may have felt, as Scott said, the weight of condemnation in your life. You may feel that weight of condemnation even now. But Jesus Christ accepts you. There was a woman caught in adultery, and they wanted to condemn her. They wanted to throw stones at her. And Jesus said, let the one without the, without the sin be the first to throw the stone. And then he wrote in the sand, the dirt, and one by one they walked away. And he said, where are your accusers? Are there none who condemn you? You see, if the condemnation that we deserved fell upon Jesus, if he takes away condemnation, then he accepts us exactly as we are. And we belong now into his family. Matthew was longing for a family to belong in. He was heavily rejected and heavily um, put out. He wasn't even allowed to be in the synagogue. But Jesus said to him, follow me. He didn't say to Matthew, follow your ambition, follow your appetites, follow Twitter, follow Facebook. He said, follow me. Being a disciple will change the very trajectory of your life. You cannot stay in proximity to Jesus and stay the same. Matthew had become a corrupted by the corruption of this world. He was driven by naked ambition and greed, but he was longing to find freedom, just as you and I both long to find freedom and forgiveness in the person of Jesus. So what does Matthew, what drew Matthew to Jesus? Matthew didn't need to be hated. He needed to be loved. Matthew didn't need to be condemned and judged. He needed to be accepted. And what did Matthew do? <laughs> Matthew left everything and followed Jesus. And then he invited Jesus to his house for dinner. And whom did he invite to the house to have dinner with him. He invited all the tax collectors and the sinners. You see, there was a category like, he's a sinner. But then there's a category like, he's a tax collector. And all the tax collectors came to Matthew's house, the tax collector, to meet Jesus. I can imagine the disciples saying something like, 
we're going to the tax collector's house? Are you kidding me? To make matters worse, he's invited other tax collectors to come? If Jesus could save the tax collector, he could save me. If Jesus could save the other tax collectors, he can save you as all also. Jesus broke bread with the tax collectors. To break bread was a sign of friendship. He connected with the sinners and tax collectors. Jesus said, you know, when you're going to have a dinner at your house, don't invite your friends, your neighbors, your, your uh, rich, rich neighbors who can pay you back. Invite the poor, the blind, the lame, the sinners to come who can't pay you back. And what happens now is Jesus is teaching them how to fish for men, how to engage with people, how to listen to their stories, how to break bread with them, how to share himself with them. He was inviting them into a God encounter. And the people in that room saw that Jesus was a friend to sinners. Now, what do you see when you see people? We tend to see people by their outer appearances, right? We see a well-dressed person and we say, hey, what's the occasion? We see a person with a cast and we say, hey, what happened to you? We see a person on a bike in the wintertime and we say, that must be an immigrant. Or one of our elders, Steve Ranny, who rides his bike in the wintertime. We tend to judge people by their outer appearances, right? We tend to see them and categorize them. But when Jesus saw people, he did not put categories around them. He did not distinguish between people because Jesus came to seek and save what was lost. And Matthew was a lost man living as a tax collector. Now, what's amazing about the story is that Matthew was a collector and in his gospel, he would collect stories about Jesus. The very best rendition of the Sermon on the Mount is in the book of Matthew. The very best sending out of disciples is in the book of Matthew. The Great Commission is in the book of Matthew. And Matthew would go up to Persia, and there he would proclaim the gospel. He would come back to live in Antioch, where he'd be a leader of the church, and then go down to Egypt and Ethiopia because he became a follower of Jesus and a fisher of men. Now listen to what the Pharisees said about all this. They said, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The short answer is he loved them. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. You know, if your lungs are healthy, you don't need a doctor. But if you're coughing up a lung, you need a doctor. If your leg is healthy and strong, you don't really need a doctor. But if your leg is broken, you definitely need a doctor. And the doctor comes to proximity to the sick to bring healing to the sick. And Jesus is announcing his mission. He's saying, I am the great physician who can heal your soul. You may have gone in all different kinds of directions, but if you follow this direction, you'll find healing to your soul. Jesus is the great healer, and he invites us to follow him. Now, we may delude ourselves 
into thinking we are healthy. The Pharisees believed that they were healthy. They had religion and rules to follow, but they really were sick. And I think what happens now in the story is <laughs> Peter says, you know what? I think I'm sick. And Andrew says, you know what? We're sick. And James and John said, hey, we're sick. There's something wrong with us all. You see, there's something wrong with the human condition. And Jesus came to restore us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. He restores my soul. Jesus came to restore the broken soul, the wounded soul, and to bring healing. He is the great physician. And then he says this, For I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call the sinners. If you're a sinner, you can hear his call. See, most sinners start out thinking it's going to be fun, fun, fun. And then we step into addiction. We find that our sin takes us places we don't want to go. And sin makes us stay longer than we want to stay. And sin makes us pay more than we want to pay. But it's Jesus who went to the cross to pay for our sin. And it's Jesus who calls us out of sin into a new life. We may have started a relationship thinking it's good, 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 but it's become bad, bad, bad because of sin. You see, sin has its own destructive power in your life. Sin will draw you, entice you, ensnare you, captivate you. But Jesus came to set us free from everything that held us captive in sin. We can be held captive in sin our entire lives or find freedom and forgiveness in Jesus. That's why he said, I've come to call the sinners, not the righteous. The righteous have their rules. They have their religion. They think they've got it all together. But the sinner knows there's a need in their life that I'm broken, I'm bruised, I'm beaten. I got things in my life I can't fix. I can't save myself. I need a savior. That's why Jesus calls us who are sinners to be his disciples. Looking at Matthew, he was a broken man on a broken path with a broken mindset. He believed the path to happiness was making money at other people's expense. And Jesus would show him an entirely different way to live. Follow me. Follow me. And he calls us into this life of discipleship. So let me ask you this and invite Scott and the others to come. Are you, are you merely a Christian? Or do you want to define yourself as a disciple? I don't know where you are in the process. Okay? You may be struggling with this whole business of discipleship, what it means. But every presentation of the gospel calls for a response. And we've been at this for about four weeks now. And if you want to draw, you know, I put a stake in the ground, I want to draw a line in the sand, say, I'm crossing over. I may have done this before, or this may be the first time I've ever declared this publicly. I want to say that I am a disciple. 
And to my right is a board that says, I am a disciple. And there are all different kinds of pens there to which you can sign your name. If you're not ready to sign, please don't sign on. But if you're ready to declare publicly that I am one of his, I've been bought with a price, I'm going to follow him, I'm going to go where he asked me to go, I'm going to do what he asked me to do, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to ask you to sign. Pray with me. Father, in this holy moment, this sacred moment, the invitation comes, still comes to us to follow. Whatever resistance, whatever pushback is in our soul, God, would you help us resolve that dilemma and follow the prompting of your Holy Spirit and declare publicly that I am his. I am a disciple. I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you.